Good evening. Just make sure this is working. Okay. Huh? Good evening. Just I want to begin to, as we start today. I would like to take a moment and mention that today's learning and today's class should be in the merit and in the honor of the safety of the people, of the, especially the Jewish people in Ukraine, that God protect them and shield them wherever they are. I know that many people are, personally, I know many people are fleeing at this moment from the cities of Kharkov, Kiev, and places of the such, Zhitomir, Potrova, Chernigov. There's over 180 shluchim in Ukraine. All of them stayed behind, but now, huh? All of them stayed until last night. Uh, last night, uh, Chernigov, which was completely bombed, so therefore they had to leave. Uh, they're on their way to, the, a lot of people left to Moldova. From there, to Hungary, to Germany, Poland, to Israel, to different places that people went to. But uh, the God protect them and watch them. Some places are too dangerous to leave. I know that there's 15 Chabad family, Shluchim in Kharkov. At the moment, they said it's too dangerous for them to leave. It's more dangerous for them to leave than for them to stay there as there's bombs just going off all around them. So, uh, God protect them. So, welcome to Lesson 5, and better things, and happier things, and in the merit of our learning, God will protect them. That's what we can do. So, welcome to Lesson 5. Just a little recap of what we've discussed until now. We've learned about the spiritual ideas that one can access through deep contemplative meditation, Especially as we learned about last week that meditating and recognizing that every moment of the day, and if you recall, we even showed that every second and every millisecond is considered and has a special divine energy. And therefore, as we know, by properly meditating on the spiritual character of the world, the construct of time, and we then are able to introduce godliness in our life. This very concept is, of course, as we know, very revolutionary, but if implemented po- uh, properly, will give us and reframe everything we do to make it more meaningful. We'll make sure that we understand and appreciate that there is holiness and spirituality in even the mundane things. That the fact that spirituality is not separated from physical, but they're intertwined, interrelated, and therefore we can access it. Such a type of reframing cannot happen in a vacuum, as we know, and it only happens through the very fact that we are able to meditate and take the time to be mindful and to really understand and be intentional and recognize that everything we have in our life and everything that we do in every single moment and in everything we do and how we behave automatically is fused with an energy, a divine energy, and ultimately, when we think about this, this can actually have a very uh, drastic change in the way we look at things in life. Today, we are going to try to take everything we've learned in the previous five classes and to crystallize it, make it practical, and see how we can reveal another level of what Jewish meditation is all about by giving us a better idea of how everything we've learned so far really means practically in our day-to-day life. If I were to show you an item, the most expensive item in jewelry, but you wouldn't see it, it'll be covered with sand, and I ask you how much that is worth, what would you tell me? Nothing. It's just some dirt. But if I then show you that within the dirt, there's this beautiful item, beautiful diamond, automatically, that earth has value. 
What changed? What changed in that item? Nothing. If the item had a ring in earth, the diamond in earth, all that changed was your perception. All what changed is what you saw. At first you saw only earth. Once I peeled away the layers and you were now able to see the hidden gem that was inside, automatically now you had a new idea of what that thing is. So therefore, you've now seen the true earth of it. The goal of Jewish meditation, as we explained many times, is not to remove us from this world, but to remove what is blocking, to change our perception, to allow us to see things in a different venue, to allow us to see things, to see the real story, to seal the real uh, idea behind what's going on, behind everything that's there. So when I meditate about something, and this is not only true in a spiritual sense, but think about it anything. When we see a lot of things in the world, you see a painting. You see the painting, and what are you, from a distance, it may look like a bunch of different strokes of colors of paint. But then when you walk up closer and you see the fine-tuning of the brush and how it makes certain strokes, certain shades, certain colors, and especially if you're an artist, you're in tune to see the detail and the difficulty and what it took to make this beautiful painting. The same thing is in any type of work that we have. If you are a regular layman and you receive some type of letter and you look at it, you can think maybe it was copy and paste. Somebody just knocked out a few words from a typewriter. But if you're a writer, an orator, you think about how, what went into construct this paragraph, this sentence, what went into thinking about it, what the person's going to say, how they're going to say it, all these different things. Everything has thought behind it. The same is with the universe, and even more so as we learned about in the previous lessons. By recognizing that every single item in the universe, every single blade of grass has a divine energy behind it. If we take a moment to contemplate and realize that behind these mundane items, behind these regular things, there is so much more hidden behind it. And therefore, we want to find out what's the real story. To tap into the reality, to the true reality, to the divine energy that exists into this thing, the only way we can do it is to really meditate about it, to think about it. And once we meditate about it, and once we look deeply into it, we can then find that everything that we encounter, from the most practical, mundane, simplistic things in life, will lead us to having a more meaningful life. And therefore, what we're going to try to do today is figure out how we can achieve this to make this more meaningful life to us. So what's this big idea that we talk about? What are we supposed to think about in order to transform the physical, the mundane, into something spiritual? In order to see the spiritual divine energy that exists in everything. Last week we spoke about it, in the past we spoke about that every single item in this world, every single moment, God is creating the world from new. The universe is continuously creating with a new divine energy, a godly energy. And therefore, with the proper focus and intention, we can see how the universe continuously reinvents itself, so to speak, recreates itself, and re-gives, reinvigorates itself. But then, what happens to us? Where do we fit into the picture? Our job is to, so to speak, pick up the pieces. How do we identify, it? we as people identify what is there for us and how it relates to us? And how do we realize this in everywhere and anything? And therefore, we begin today with a, a quote from Proverbs. Proverbs says as follows, 
Know God in all your ways. That's text number 1a. And he will direct your paths. The Talmud expounds on this verse and says as follows. Bar Kapara taught. This is text number 1b, page 149. Which is a brief passage upon all fundamentals of the principles of Torah are dependent. Know God in all your ways and he will direct your paths. With these few words, Bar Kapara is indeed giving us an entire spotlight of what it's telling us. He's telling us know God. What does it mean to know God? How does one know God? But what Bar Kapara is telling us that knowing God is not just about doing mitzvot. Know God in all your ways means that when I do a mitzvah, it's obvious that I'm connecting to God. I know God. When I pray to God, I know God. When I put on tefillin, I know God. When I study Torah, I know God. But what Bar Kapara over here is telling us that I need to know God in all my ways. All my ways means that in everything I do, even in the most mundane, physical, materialistic act, there should be God. And as we will see today throughout this lesson, we will meditate and have three meditations that we're going to go through today, which is going to help us focus and zero in to be able to take this idea. Maimonides expounds on this in a broader term, and he says as follows in text number two. We should direct our hearts and the totality of our behavior in one goal, becoming aware of God. Blessed be He. The way we rest, rise, and converse should all be directed to this end. For example, when involved in business dealings or while working for a wage, we should not think solely about amassing wealth. Rather, we should engage in such activities for the sake of being in a position to obtain that which our body needs food, drink, shelter, and a spouse. Then we eat, drink, or engage in intimate relations. We should not intend to do these things solely for pleasure, to do the point that we eat and drink only that which is sweet and tasty, and we engage in intimacy for pleasure. Rather, we should focus our minds while eating and drinking on an exclusive benefit of maintaining a full, healthy body. Therefore, we should not eat whatever the palate desires. We should put us on par with animals, but rather, we should select foods that are beneficial for the body whether they are bitter or sweet, and we should avoid substances that are harmful to the body, even if they taste delicious. So right here, Maimonides pretty much sums it up and says, if we do anything, what should it be channeled for? It should be channeled for an absolute godly devotion. How do we take what Maimonides says and actually make it into a practical formula that we can apply to? And this lesson we're going to take three major parts of our life that we do of a mundane life and look at it from a far deeper perspective in looking how we can change our everyday routine through meditation based on Kabbalah and Hasidism. And the three parts we're going to help changing from being just regular mindless individuals but to be mindful or at least to be able to be more in tune of what we're doing in the three major things that almost every person does, I'm sure, is eating, sleeping, and working. And as we go through each one of the categories, we will have a meditation for that category to be able to apply it into our practical life. So let's start with the first one, which is eating. You see it in exercise 5.1. Jot down, or you can just say, yell out loud, Ex- jot down your preferred food for each of the following. Breakfast, dinner date, snack, 
food, comfort food, dessert. Anybody want to share with us? What's your preferred food for breakfast? Oatmeal. Oatmeal, okay. Dinner date? Dinner. Dinner, yeah. Dinner date. Huh? Steak. Steak. Okay. Snack? Ice cream. Ice cream. There we go. Comfort food? That's not ice cream? Oh, <laughs> huh? French fries. French fries. Okay. And dessert? Chocolate. Chocolate. There we go. Now, remember all those foods. You're stuck in a deserted island without a clue as to when you're going to be rescued. Identify the one food you want to have with you. Water. Cashew. Water. Cashew, huh? Peanut butter. Okay. The only one, you're the only one that actually said a food that's mentioned in your, in your preferred foods. But chances are, in most cases, your preferred food versus the food that you're going to need while you're stuck in an island without any clue if you're going to have any food is not going to be the same. Why is that? Particularly, especially, in our modern era, much of the food that we eat today is not for survival. Because if it was for survival, bread and water would do fine. You don't have ice cream, chocolate, french fries, oatmeal even, for survival. You eat it in most cases because it's good. Usually, you're not having a tub of ice cream or having a two-pound steak or whatever it may be or just even grabbing a snack bar because you need to survive. It's because you desire it, you want it, therefore you have it. Most of us, at least I'll talk for myself, or most of the time, we're mindlessly popping food into our mouth. Not necessarily because we need it. It looks good. Might as well try it. So what happens? Without meditation, what are we doing? We're just taking any food we see and eating it. It looks good. It tastes good. I eat it. And therefore, sometimes we eat things that can sometimes be not necessarily for the best of our interest. But if I was mindful of what I'm eating, what happens then? All of a sudden, I start eating healthier. I start recognizing what I'm eating. One of the things that, I'll give you an example, diets do to people, especially one of the genius ideas behind Weight Watchers, was not necessarily that people eat less, was that they're mindful of what they're eating. All of a sudden you notice this has sugar, this has salt, this is, and all of a sudden, and when do you find out about it the most? Is when somebody, for example, has an, allerg- an allergy to on, behind. I'll give you an example. My son, for example, has a nut allergy. I never knew that most chocolate have hazelnuts in it. You would never know. Why? Because why should you look? But once there's somebody that has an allergy and where there can be a bad reaction to it, you become more mindful of it. So that's a very physical, mindful type of concept. But now let's take it to the, uh, to the idea where we talk about eating in general, not even about allergies. The moment I am mindful what I'm eating, the moment I am conscious what I'm eating, I automatically start eating healthier and different. Because now I'm not eating anymore. Because I want to, I'm eating to survive. I change my perspective. And if I need it to survive, what is the best nutrients that I can eat that will help me survive? So mindful eating is not just about healthy eating. But with mindful eating, we can automatically now frame the concept of eating to make us more spiritually inclined even while we're eating. Then all of a sudden our eating habits can become now a way of serving God.
How is this done? Well, Jewish rituals especially have this implemented within the Jewish ritual. What is the first thing we do before we eat? We make a blessing. Go back to our father Abraham. Abraham, the way he persuaded people to believe in God was that he ate, and then he said, one second, now you have to thank God. After they said, we don't want to thank God, who's God, what's God? He said, okay, then pay me 500, whatever it was at the time, gold coins. He said, why should I pay you that much? He said, where are you going to get food in the desert? And he gave them in a recognition, say, one second, where did you get this food from? How did it happen? He caused them to be in a state of mindfulness that they should acknowledge and recognize that God exists. What a blessing does before eating, it takes a moment and says, stop. One second, where did you get this food from? Why am I having it? Why am I eating it? What's it causing me to do? I recognize that my food didn't just pop on the table just like that. It came from someplace. There was something that had to do for it to happen. I remember I used to do these model matzo bakeries in different schools. I did them once in California and a bunch of different places. And the first question I asked the kids is, where does flour come from? Almost every kid in the group said flour. First they thought flowers, you know, in the garden. But then I told them flour actually comes in bread and all these type of forms, which many kids don't even know the flour is in bread. Oh, the grocery store. A regular kid today would not even know that there's a mill and there's somebody that's toiling and harvesting and all the different things that go into making flour. Think about anything you eat. Think about you want to have some mac and cheese. How did that macaroni come about? There had to be a farmer in Kansas who was, pl- who was planting the, uh, the, the, the wheat or whatever it was over there, that they, the, the uh, semolina flour to be able to harvest it, and then they had to grind it, and then they had to make it. Anybody ever make a pasta at home? It's a lot of work. Then all of a sudden, the cheese you want to make. You got to milk the cow, then you have to make the cow, and then it has to be able to have all the different details to be able to get the cow to, hard to make, let it sit, and then grain it, and all strain it, and get the fats from it. It doesn't happen overnight. We walk into the store, we take something off the counter, or off the, off the, out of the fridge, we take for granted how it got there. We take it for granted until we can't get it anymore, right? But what happens is, so when we take a whole detailed concept and when we look into things, that everything that if you think about just the little lunch that you eat, the sandwich that you take for lunch, think about all the energy and everything that went into making that sandwich. All of a sudden, we have a whole different appreciation for the food that we eat. And what does God tell us? Take a moment before you eat and recognize and understand and appreciate that that sandwich that you're eating didn't just pop on your plate. It didn't pop in the grocery store. There are truckers, there are vendors, there are distributors, there's people all along. And when do we find out? All of a sudden we say, the shipping, you know, now today in America, there's a problem, this is not getting to this place, that's not getting to this place. Why? You have one trucker goes on strike, all of a sudden you're not going to have bread anymore. I remember during COVID, there was a time that everybody was home until everybody was baking, and there was a shortage of yeast. You couldn't find yeast anywhere. Why? Because the trucker had COVID. He couldn't bring it. So all of a sudden you realize that guy's important. When we see over here the concepts and we start to appreciate what it means that the food that comes to our table didn't just pop there, we all of a sudden start having a better appreciation for food. It turns out, as we know, that God is, of course, involved in every single aspect of it. And there's an interesting custom that's brought in Jewish law, as we'll see in the next part, is that when a person makes a blessing on the challah, you'll see many people do it on the challah or on bread, that they hold the bread with both hands when they make the blessing on it. 
And the reason is because there are 10 activities which are determined, called melachot, laws, or considered work on Shabbos, that go into making bread. See text number three. Before reciting the, ble- ble- the blessing over bread, put both your hands on the bread, for your ten fingers reflect the ten mitzvahs associated with bread making. They are to avoid plowing with two species and animals together, to avoid growing forbidden mixtures of plant and species, to leave leka, chikha, peya, the three distinct forms of overlooked harvest for the poor to collect, to bring the first fruit we call to Jerusalem, to donate truma to tithe to the Kohen, to observe the rites of Maiserish and Maiserishen, and to donate a portion of dough to the Kohen. So we see very clearly here that the journey of the piece of bread or the sandwich that you're eating to your table, farm to table, is a long experience. And number one, when we take a moment to make a blessing and thank God that it made all those steps and all the places along the way that you are able to have it is step number one of us being mindful into the item that we have. But there's something deeper into this blessing that we say before reading. It's not only expressing thanks for the food that got to your table and recognizing the long chain production. But Kabbalah explains to us something even deeper. You ever see nutrition facts on the side of a label of telling you what's in that food? And they can tell you how much sodium and everything else that's there, every single aspect, every single particle, how many molecules of sodium or whatever may be in that type of an item of a food. The same way there's a physical energy in the food, there's also a spiritual energy into every item of food that we eat. And every single item of food that we eat, the same way it gives us physical energy as a human being, it also gives us spiritual energy. And also when we eat kosher food, as described according to the Torah, making a blessing on it and eating it in the appropriate way, that food that we ate becomes spiritual energy for our soul. So when we eat a physical item, listen to the, 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 the unbelievable concept behind there, when you eat physical, materialistic food, you are actually feeding your soul as long as it's done mindfully and recognizing that it's done according to the way that the Torah prescribes it. So by making a blessing on the food, what we're essentially doing is focusing our mind on the spiritual energy that exists within the food and bringing it into my body so it should energize my soul. Text number 4.8 from the words of the Baal Shem Tov. When God declared, let the earth give forth living souls, let the earth produce vegetation and fruit trees, let the very words created everything and those same utterances continue to function the inner life of which was created through them. When we take a fruit or any food and recite a blessing over it with proper intent, articulating the words, blessed are you God, mentioning God's sacred name, the spiritual energy responsible for bringing that fruit into existence is activated. This occurs because everything was created through the divine name. And our articulation of God's name and the blessing awakens the divine energy that flows from God's name within the fruit. Then the awakened energy with the fruit provides spiritual sustenance of our soul. This can only work with kosher food, substances that God himself directed us to sublimate from the mundane to the divine. This is a deeper significance of the verse. Know that a person does not live by bread alone, but rather that whatever one does comes from the mouth of God. Does a person live? It is not the physical bread alone that supports life. 
Rather, when we utter God's name in a blessing and activate the spiritual energy, that is what gives the person life, or more precisely, to the soul that animates us. So what happens here is, God's speech creates the world. If God's speech creates the world like we discussed, then all of a sudden, every single thing that is created in the world has a godly spark that flows through that ideas of creation. With that, when we say a blessing, what we are doing is we are activating that godly spark that exists within the nature of the, of the item that we're eating. There's a story told about one of the great scholars of the 18th century, Rapinchas Horowitz, known as the Bala Flaw. He was once brought in front of him a very difficult question about an issue about an animal that was slaughtered if the animal was kosher. Now, not like today, you just walk into the supermarket and you get the ready-made cut meat and it says the rabbi's stamp on it and it's kosher, half of it's non-kosher, whatever it may be, and they keep the kosher. And that's what you know is kosher. But those days, it was a very big investment for somebody to have meat because if that animal would be non-kosher, it's a lost investment. There's nothing you can do with it. Maybe sell it on the little bit of a market of the non-kosher neighbor, but they knew that they were getting, they needed to get rid of it, so there was very big loss. So they would go to the rabbi and the rabbi would ponder and think, is this animal kosher or not? And this fellow comes to the rabbi and brings him this animal that he had a question about. And the rabbi is sitting in his study for hours trying to figure out a way to see if this animal is kosher or not. Finally, the rabbi emerges from his study and he says, it's kosher. One of his students there approached the rabbi and asked the rabbi, what took you so long to be able to come up with a resolution? Isn't there a clear commentator known as the Sifse Kohen who says clearly that such a type of animal is non-kosher. Why did you have to meditate? Why did you have to take your time to be able to find some opinion from that it's tucked away someplace else to be able to make this animal kosher? The rabbi looks at him and says, listen here, when I come up above after 120, they're going to judge me for all the rulings that I make and the things that I said kosher and the things that I said non-kosher. If I were to say this animal is non-kosher, the ox will come and protest by the heavenly court and say, who gave you the right to deny so many families of meat that they could have elevated, that you could have made me holy? He says, I'm not worried about that I'll have to answer to the shach, to the sifsei kohen, that he'll tell me why I didn't rule like him. But what am I going to answer to the ox who's going to say, why I didn't have to give him a chance to be elevated. Every single thing in this world that's given the opportunity to be elevated, that means it's kosher, is waiting for us to elevate it. That means it's not the food that energizes us. That means God hosts within the food that we eat. So when we look at this item of food, it's merely a container of a spiritual energy. And every single time we eat, properly by making a blessing before it, what we're doing is taking the opportunity to stop and think and recognize that the item that I'm eating is not just merely a food that tastes good. It also has a spiritual energy in it. Even more so. The same way every single piece of food has a nutritional item, a nutritional makeup to it, this item also has a DNA of spirituality that's buried in the food. And it's waiting for me from the time of creation to elevate it. God created in a world in a way that there are sparks all over the place. 
One of the reasons, just on this little side tidbit, why the Jewish people have a commandment in the Torah that they're not allowed to go back to Egypt. Jews are not allowed to live in Egypt. The only reason why Jews lived in Egypt during a certain time of Maimonides, 14th century, 11th century, and so on, was because they were chased out of everywhere else and it was a matter of life and death. But generally, a Jew is not supposed to go live in Egypt. Why? Because the commentators explain all the sparks were already elevated from there when the Jewish people were there the first time. So God designed a human being in a way that we need to eat physical food to survive because that's the way ultimately how we have the power to elevate all the things that are there. So through eating in a positive purpose, what are we doing is we're unleashing a cosmic purpose in the world and we're revealing and uplifting the divine energy that's part of that, that's part of that food by that way in a large way fulfilling the entire purpose of the world. Tagabal explains, now the next time you have a craving for a food, think about this. The Kabbalah tells us, the Kabbalah says that the next time you have a craving, and you have a sudden craving for food, whether it's mint chocolate chip or cherry chocolate chip, you know, ice cream, in the middle of the night, the reason is because there's a godly spark that's waiting for you to elevate it. So the next time you see me chumping down at some type of steak, I'm telling you there's a godly spark there. But there's a godly spark that's waiting to be elevated and redeemed, and God knows that you're the only one that can do it, and therefore he's leaving it for you to do. There's a very well-known story that's told about a student of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov once sent one of his uh, students to a place, a distant city, and on the way they got stuck in a forest and he waited there a day and waited there a whole day. Nothing happened. He was waiting. While he was there, he was very tired. So he went to the nearby and thirsty. So he went to the nearby river and took a drink of water. And he saw that whatever he was supposed to go do never materialized. So he decided to come back home. He comes back home to Mezhebush to the Baal Shem Tov, And the Baal Shem Tov asks him, so how was your trip? So he says... Uh, nothing, <laughs> I didn't get anywhere I was supposed to get to the city and we never got there so I just ended up hanging out in the forest all day so the Baal Shem Tov asked him so what did you do in the forest all day? he says nothing, I waited around and I was got thirsty, I wanted to take a drink of water and that's it the Baal Shem Tov says thank you very much for accomplishing the mission I sent you for he says what do you mean? he says that canal of river that was there that water, that canal of water was there waiting from the time of creation that somebody should come and make a blessing on it and until you came and made a blessing on it, it was crying out to God, how come I wasn't uplifted? So the moment we make a blessing on something, we automatically uplift it, and we bring it to fruition to its purpose of why it was put in this world. So that little bowl of ice cream that's saying, eat me, is waiting for its purpose to be accomplished. Text number 4b. In the words of the Baal Shem Tov, an analogy, an, an analogy. A king once lost a precious gem. Text 4b, page 157. And wished his beloved son to have the great honor of being the one to successfully locate the gem. In truth, the gem was not lost. The king knew where it had been concealed, but engineered the ploy to give his beloved son the opportunity of earning it. The king also wanted the distinct pleasure of witnessing his son's hard-earned success. The king went so far to drop his son a hint as to where the stone can be found. The analog is clear. The entire purpose for which God created this world is to enable us to retrieve the divine sparks that are lost with the materiality. For we are empowered to sublimate all kosher and permissible food items.
On this theme, the Baal Shem Tov revealed a fascinating mystical truth embedded in the verse. Hungry as well as thirsty, their soul enwraps itself in them. These words come to answer the question, why did God create us with a craving for food and make our survival dependent on eating? Says the Baal Shem Tov, listen to this. The answer is that there's a divine spark trapped in material entities. These sparks long to cleave to holiness. They call out for assistance and our souls hear their call and respond to their plight. Whenever we eat or drink, we sublimitate the divine sparks into the food or drink that have called out to achieve the spiritual elevation through us. Thus, the mystical meaning of the verse is the hungry as well as the thirsty. Why do we experience hunger and thirst? Our soul enwraps itself in them because the soul is trapped within the food in a state of exile and seeks liberation. God leaves hints for the Jewish people, indicating various ways through which we can discover the lost divine sparks and return them to the rightful owner, our Father in Heaven. So there are so many times that we have the opportunity to eat. Why there's a mitzvah to eat on Shabbat? Many people ask the question, why is Judaism such a food-oriented religion? If you notice, every single holiday is about, there was a war, let's win, a day we won, let's party. And that's basically every single Jewish holiday. Every single time Jews get together, it's all about the food. There's Shabbos food, there's Yamta food, there's whatever it may be, a bris's food, a pidin abendus food, a wedding, there's food. Everything is a sutta mitzvah, is a meal of an occasion. is because God is dropping us hints and saying, here's your opportunity to elevate the food. So what we see right over here is, by all means, enjoy your food. Because when you enjoy your food, you all of a sudden become this cosmic hero. And here is where our concept of Jewish meditation comes in. But everything we said about Jewish meditation is recognizing and understanding and appreciating and seeing everything, its express intention of what it is. Because the only time that we can truly understand and appreciate and gain from the food that we eat is when we have that express intention when we eat it. So if we have the right intention, making the right blessing, making sure the food is kosher, eating it for the right purpose, what we're doing is we're actually elevating the sparks through that process. Unfortunately, if we don't have the right intentions, what do we do? Not only don't we elevate the food, but we're burying ourselves and we become like in the words that we mentioned before, like the animal that just eats what it sees, eats what it enjoys, and doesn't differentiate because he sees it, he eats it. So therefore, one has to be careful when we talk about this concept of meditation, is that bearing in mind that how, A, the food gets to our table, the ability that all those different steps and... Oops, I'm sorry. The, the ability to recognize that everything that's there, that everything that we have ha, is there for a purpose, and to recognize where it all comes from, that helps us appreciate... A, ourselves, elevates the food, and then we can utilize these things in a proper way. In the words of the Alter Rebbe, he says it as follows, text number 5, page 159. There's a way to position eating as an act akin to offering a sacrifice to God. For example, you can eat marbled beef and drink fragrant wine for the sake of broadening your mind to better understand God and His Torah or to fulfill a mitzvah of enjoying Shabbat and the festivals with good food and beverages. When eaten in such a way, the meat and wine are sublimated. 
subliminate. Conversely, if you eat gluttonously, simply for corporal pleasure, the energy you derive from that food or beverage is temporarily dragged down into the clutches of negative energy that obstructs God. That's how powerful meditation is. Meditation gives you the ability to transform not only your, your life and your purpose, but the actual food that you're eating. It's not just conventional holy spaces, like the kitchen, but it, it's not, it doesn't happen only in the synagogue, but this is something that you do in your very own dining room, living room, restaurant, wherever you go to. By taking that food and having that meditation before you eat it, you're transforming it. In the words of the Rebbe, he says as follows. The ideal mode of serving God is that you should be able to sense the divine within the business you conduct and within your field of the mundane employment. This requires more than engaging in labor or commerce for the sake of heaven, which lends a spiritual goal to otherwise mundane activities. Rather beyond that, you should strive to sanctify the mundane activities themselves. This is true with the meaning of the verse. In all your ways you should know God. Not only should your activities be oriented towards divine awareness, but they should themselves be a divine awareness within the activities themselves. A paradigm for this is eating on Shabbos, thereby the physical act of eating itself is the fulfillment of divine instruction. Similarly, our weekday root consumption, and for that matter all mundane activities, should be conducted not only for the sake of subsequent sacred goals, but also for the immediate methods of experiencing divine awareness. So eating is really just an example. But with proper meditation, what we can see is that is to transform to anything and everything we do in life, as we're going to take some, two more examples soon, but it's with anything we do, eating, drinking, exercising, whatever it may be. You can utilize with proper meditation, A, to elevate yourself, to recognize, to be more cognizant of what you're doing, but even more so, by meditating, you'll recognize that what you're doing has a divine purpose and you elevate the item itself to a divine purpose by recognizing and bringing about the realization of the divine soul, divine consciousness that exists within everything. As we'll see in the next two sections, by the next two things that we're going to talk about, sleep and work, when we reframe any part of our life, we can then introduce godliness in that aspect of our life. So if there's one concept that we can take out of this is, number one, is to be mindful and focused to the attention that in everything we do to recognize and see the divine in anything we do. So here's the first meditation we're going to do on eating. It says to hold a, 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 what's it called, a raisin, but everybody has food or something in front of them. You can use your own imagination. We don't dichotomize between the holy and the secular. In other words, everything has meaning. Everything is valuable. Everything is precious. Even the most mundane aspects of life contain deep spiritual meaning. And we relate to that in a very profound way. Even eating. You have been given a raisin. Just hold it in your hand and I'll tell you what to do with it. So gently close your eyes. 
and just become aware of your five senses. Become aware of what your eyes see at the back of your eyelids. Become aware class. of what you can hear Beautiful. in the room, even sounds within you. Become aware of the feel of the raisin, its texture. Anticipate the taste of the raisin once you begin to eat it. And become aware of any fragrance around you. I would like you to take the raisin and adopt a particular kavana, focused intention. And the focused intention is that you are going to borrow the soul energy of that raisin and allow it to become part of your own energy system. You will do that by eating it. To adopt a focused kavana, we prepare ourselves by saying abrasa. Abracha, commonly translated as blessing, means a way of drawing down a channel for the soul spark within the raisin to become elevated through. Say it with me or just respond, Amen. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Beirei Pri HaEz and begin chewing. And as you chew the raisin slowly, many times, become aware of the different textures that you encounter. And as the saliva mixes with the skin of the raisin, with the body of the raisin, it changes even more. Become aware of the sweetness of its taste. All these aspects that are the product of the spark soul of that raisin. Sweetness produces uplift of emotions. That is 
the soul spark within. Listen to your teeth chewing the raisin, thereby making it much more amenable to digestion. All the wondrous ways that Hashem created the world, all just for elevating the soul spark in the seemingly mundane and ordinary. Be prepared now to swallow the remains of the raisin. And as you do, sense how it becomes one within you. Its vitamins and goodness being extracted through the bloodstream into the needs of the body and the soul spark within being released to a much higher spiritual state because of your bracha. Everything we do in life can be elevated and become much more meaningful if we understand the spiritual dynamics. Soul sparks exist in everything. When we do the right thing, we free the soul spark from its prison, channeling it to its higher source. And we become elevated in the process. Okay, so now that we've done the eating, let's move to our next step. So before we go to the next one, just to note that when we talk about sleep meditation, we're not talking about sleep meditations, the generic sleep meditations that are there that are meant to help you sleep and take everything off your mind and therefore you're able to rest and so on and therefore give you fewer things to think about. What we're going to talk about sleep meditation in this case is what we accomplish through sleep and how to maximize our sleep and what are the benefits of re-energizing and prioritizing that we wake up like a different person. They used to say in Yiddish of saying, if you go to sleep like a lion, you wake up like a lion. You go to sleep like a horse, you'll wake up like a horse. Meaning that the way we go to sleep, the way we look at it from a Jewish perspective and from a meditation perspective, is to be able to wake up a different person. And therefore, without meditation, when we sleep, the purpose of sleep is that you want to get rested. You want to have a better night's sleep. Sleep with meditation helps us to be re-energized and recharged for the day ahead. Here's a hypothetical exercise 5.2. Imagine you were offered the magical pill that enables you to function endlessly without any sleep at all. 
would you take it? You would? Absolutely. Yeah, you feel okay. Yeah. You would take it. Why would you take it? Oh, okay. You want to get more stuff done. Okay, there you go. Anyway, who says they wouldn't take it? I wouldn't take it. You wouldn't take it. Why not? Let's say you'll never feel wear out. You're worried about the side effects, huh? <laughs> Isn't it crazy that if you think about it, a third of your life you spend sleeping? Imagine you get about seven hours of sleep, six hours of sleep, whatever it is. A third of your life you meant sleeping. Couldn't God have designed a world that humans wouldn't have to sleep? Make our hardware a little differently so we shouldn't have to sleep? Why is it that we have to sleep? What's the purpose of sleeping on it? The so- yeah? In fact, they studied it and they, for a long time they didn't understand why we sleep. It didn't seem any biological reason why we have to sleep. It doesn't... It didn't, it, I mean, so what's the reason? So what? So Well, now they think it has to do with the brain. Okay. So one of the things that sleep does to us is a very simple thing. It gives us a fresh start. I'm sure your mother used to tell you, sleep on it, and tomorrow come with me and tell me another answer. Or sometimes you yourself says, let me sleep on it. What does it mean to sleep on it? Why is it? You ever go to sleep sad and you wake up the next morning like nothing ever happened? Go to sleep angry, you wake up the next morning like nothing ever happened? You're having a bad day and then you go to sleep and all of a sudden feel better? Well, if you're not feeling well, you go to sleep and all of a sudden you feel better? Yes. So what's the concept of sleep? Why were you told to sleep? What sleep does, and Judaism recognizes the idea, that sleep gives the person a new sense of purpose, a new sense of life, re-energizes the individual to recognize that when they wake up every single morning, you're a new person, you're a new entity. Similarly, but in a different way, and that's why Shabbat people sleep on Shabbat too. (laughs) But what's the concept? The idea is that we say every single morning when we wake up, we say, I thank you, God, that you returned my soul. I became a new person. It's one prayer we say every single morning before the moment we wake up, before we wash our hands. It doesn't have God's name in it, so it's not necessarily considered, so to speak, a prayer. But what are we saying in that prayer, in that phrase? God, thank you for giving me a new day, a new life, a new energy. Why am I giving thanks to God? Bilaam said, I would not go to sleep to begin with. What the prayer is and what it's telling us is, is recognizing that today I've been renewed for a new purpose. That what happened yesterday doesn't matter. Today is a new idea, a new energy, a new excitement. In fact, what do we say after Moda'ani? When we wake up in the morning, in the morning blessings, we say the blessing, Asher Yotzar Adam, that you created man. Why do I make the blessing every single day that you created man? Make it once in your life, thanking God that you created man with all the different parts that we thank God for the plumbing that's working in our body. Why do I have to say it every morning? Text number 7, Rabbi Schneer Zalman says, It is customary to recite the blessing of Asher Yotzar each morning. Because at the start of each day we are like freshly created beings. It is therefore appropriate to praise God daily for having created humans with His wisdom. Although that it may seem natural to be to go to sleep, but what do we say every morning? We say, no, thank you God that I'm here again this morning. What else does sleep do? As we mentioned, 
Sleep gives us the opportunity as a fresh start, but not by the very fact that I turn off who I was and the next morning I become a new person. But there's actually a concept that before we go to sleep, we do something called a cheshben hanefesh. We take in a, a, uh, a, huh? an accounting of what happened that day. It's a mixture of, so to speak, soul-searching and stock-taking. That before leaving the day, we say, what did I accomplish today and what am I going to do tomorrow? Sleeping gives me that opportunity that I can take a break between what I accomplished today and what I'm going to do tomorrow. In the words of the Zohar, the Zohar calls upon us to do it every single night. Before you lay down to sleep each night, we should take stock of our deeds throughout the day. We should repent for whatever we did wrong and ask God for compassionate forgiveness. So I have modani to start my day, to give me that fresh start. And then I have sleep, which gives me a time to pause. It gives me a time to take stock. But then there's also another similar thing that's mentioned. There's another element to sleep as well. Judaism builds into this meditation a pit stop for every single day. But beyond the meditation of the pit stop to recognize where I am, how far I've gone, what I have done, but there's another concept here in Jewish law. There's a practice of, so to speak, letting go. In the evening prayer of Shema, in the Siddur, you can find us. There's a prayer before we say the Shema, it says as follows. Rebbeinu Shalom Almighty God. I hereby forgive to anybody who have wronged me in any way, shape, or form, whether in heart, whether in soul, and so on and so forth. A person automatically at the time, he lets go of any toxicity that may exist in his life. I remember speaking to somebody, it was just a few months ago, somebody that was having some hardships, a little bit of emotional challenges, because so they felt that somebody wronged them. And one night they decided that they're going to say this prayer with full intention and really mean it. That's it. This person's negative energy, keep them out of my life. I forgive them. It's done. It's over. I move on. He called me up the next morning. He tells me he feels like a thousand pounds were lifted off his back. He was able to go to sleep and say with his whole heart, God, I'm done with this guy. He means nothing to me. Let go of the toxicity and then he's able to wake up in the morning a fresh new individual. In life, there are many different things that throw us different challenges and different cycles and things that happen. What God did with the division of days, of saying today is Sunday and Monday and so on, it will be one long book would never end. That guy's problems, my problems, and everything comes together. So what God says is the day ends. Okay, the issues end. Forget about them. It was Friday. You do it over the weekend, you all of a sudden you forget about it. It's Monday, it's Tuesday. But every single night we have that opportunity to, so to speak, shut down and reboot. What's the problem when your computer is going all haywire and all these screens aren't opening up? What is the first thing you got to do? Restart. Turn everything off and then the next morning you restart. And that's exactly what sleep is. On the mystical level, as we know, the sleep is a chance to reboot. Where does the soul go when it's sleeping? The soul throughout the day is trapped in a body, piling on layers of material garbage. And therefore, while the soul is awake, it's more involved in the bodily consciousness of what's happening. It interacts with the body throughout the day. But for the soul, not necessarily does it get too much attention. But when a person goes to sleep, the soul has that opportunity to be able to go back on high and recharge and all of a sudden... It can appreciate 
what it is. With the meditation now, what the soul can appreciate and recognize is that the moment it's going to sleep, why is it going to sleep? It's going to sleep to be able to reach to greater heights than it ever had before. To be able to recharge and get energy that it didn't have the previous day. Text number nine, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak says, Our sages instituted the practice of reciting the verse, I I deposit my spirit into your hand. Each night, before going to sleep, just after reciting the bedtime Shema, we should meditate on the idea that we are depositing our souls as if on loan and consider to whom we are providing the deposit. Our souls then draw life from on high. That is a spiritual life. So before we go to sleep, when saying the evening Shema, we can meditate a moment and reflect on what's happening to the soul's journey. What am I doing now? I am giving my soul to God to recharge it, to reboot it, to give it energy so that when I wake up in the morning, I wake up a whole new person, a whole new individual. Here again, Jewish meditation shows us that when the soul can experience something greater, if we just put our mind to it, when we have the express intention that when we go to sleep, which seemingly seems like a needed activity, something which is natural of the human being, what we're actually doing is creating a purposeful effect in our sleeping, making it something of purpose and of reason. Talking about the sleep of reason, once the fifth Chabad Rebbe, who used to have his grandchildren over at his house, he taught them that everything that we do on Shabbat, I'm mentioning this because he mentioned about the sleep on Shabbos, he says everything that we do on Shabbos has to be for the purpose of Shabbos. So the children asked, what about sleeping? How is sleeping for the purpose of Shabbos? So the Rebbe answered them and said that even sleep needs to be holy. And that if you go to sleep with the intention that you want it to be a holy sleep, then the sleep becomes holy. So when a person's on Shabbat and they want to go to sleep because they want to make the sleep holy, even that sleep becomes holy. So with proper meditation, what we can do is we can even transform that mundane sleep into a spiritual sleep. And it's all about how you think about it and that conscious process that you have. That, that, huh? That's fine. It, it, and you're allowed to say the Shema. It does say that you have to say the Shema the closest time before you, before you, the closest time to going to sleep. But it doesn't, as long as you say it at night time, it's fine. But having that meditation, there's a side benefit that it helps you maybe go to sleep too. <laughs> Even though that's not the purpose of the meditation, as we mentioned, it's to a charge. So let's see the meditation of sleep. a mystery falling asleep that absolutely beautiful transition as you move from consciousness into some state of subconsciousness and what you're doing is allowing yourself to move upwards wander your soul in higher realms where it is energized for the next morning. Gently close your eyes. And just become aware 
of waves rolling in from the sea. Observe one wave as it finally lands on the shoreline, losing its form, its last gasp, with its wetness extending, and then the excess gently rolling back into the sea, the cycle of a wave, the cycle of life. Are you aware of the moment of falling asleep when the wave loses its form and spreads on the shoreline? Do you prepare yourself for the journey of your soul at night? When the soul rises to higher realms, enjoying a tutorial to further enlighten it, give it peace and rest to become refreshed by morning time. Do you have complete trust in your sleep state? Do you willingly allow your soul to travel on high? That state of trust, bitachon, is so necessary for a good night's sleep. Biyodoi avkid ruchi. I deposit my soul in God's hands. The soul has been given to me by the manufacturer with a warranty. And that warranty includes nightly gain, improvement, refreshment. And that's why I sleep. Prepare yourself before you go to sleep to have a state of confidence that the journey will allow you to be a better you next morning. Say the Shema before you go to sleep to create that sense of absolute confidence as you deposit your soul on high. By doing so, the depth of your sleep allows the soul's return to be one that brings you strength and confidence the next morning. Prepare for a good sleep. Be confident in elevating your soul and allow the next day to be a day of further growth 
and the soul's pathway through the body to reach out and make the world a much better place. Yes. That's why your soul is going on high. That's why you wash your hands when you wake up. Correct. So that's why, because your soul is going on high. I know, but it seems like it's not a test And if, you, if your soul is going on high. When your soul is going on high, it is a type of death state. The question is, your soul is going on. It's not. The difference is, when your soul goes on high, when a person passes on, it doesn't return, or it returns in a reincarnation. But over here, it's going on high to recharge itself. But it's the same idea. The moment the soul leaves the body, even if for a little bit, if you're in that subconscious state, that's why we wash our hands, because it's a state of impurity. So just because the soul is recharging, the body is still left in impurity for that exact reason. Yes? So what happens if a person gets up several times during the night? <laughs> no, honestly. Does the soul go, come back, go? And why not? It's, it, it doesn't get tired, it doesn't get jet lag. Okay. Okay. So, let's move on to our third uh, practical meditation that we have for today, which is work. For most of us, for most of us, work is ingrained in a practical in part of our daily routine. And even for those of us that don't work, because we're retired, unemployed, whatever it may be, for whatever reason, work is still something which is part of living and adapted to other areas of responsibility, which we call work, chores, whatever you want to call it. And it takes up probably most of any person's waking hours. And most people, of course, enjoy work. That's why they look forward to Mondays. (laughs) But how do we then reframe our approach to work? How do we transform our work into something more meaningful? How do we make that work shouldn't be this tenuous type of act, but it should become something which is meaningful, important, and recognizing the purpose in it? And recognizing that we just don't go to work because we have no choice and we got to pay our bills. So to be able to understand it, we first have to peel away the layers of why sometimes, or what happens, why do people go to work? So if I were to ask you, why do you work? Anybody? You work? <laughs> why do you work? Don't be shy. Oh, why do I work? Yeah. Uh, make money. Make, make money. A small Sometimes difference. A small difference in the world. Okay, make a small difference. Anybody else? Why do you work? Fulfillment. Okay. Why do you get fulfillment from work? That will be another question. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, anybody else? Pay bills. Pay bills. Okay. Most people, when you ask them, why do you work? Got to make money. What do I need money? To pay my bills. Why do you need to pay your bills? Because I want to have shelter. I want to have food. I want to be able to live life. Or they want to say, what, other mo- what motivates people to work is not only to pay their bills, because since they want to make sure that they have family, they have, uh, want to make sure they want to care for their loved ones, they, want to, they should be able to be taken care of, and so on, and so on and so forth. And what it boils down to is that why do you work 
is because you care about the people, yourself, and the people around you. And because you care for yourself and the people around you, you're going to do something which takes up most of your day to be able to provide and to make sure that they have something to have. When you look at that answer, it's nothing really sophisticated or philosophical about it. And we all know that it's not that hard to think about. And you say, listen here, why is any person showing up to work since they have to provide? They need to make money. They need to be able to have shelter. So let's take that concept and let's understand it. If we're operating in that level, let's put a meditation to it to be able to appreciate what we're doing here. Because there's more to the story than just working to be able to provide. There's more to the story of work going every single day to the same job and doing the same grind, whether you love it 100% or not. But the very fact that you have to do it and you keep yourself occupied for most of the day, work is not just about bringing food to your table. Work has an inherent value in it. And why does it have an inherent value? Because after all, not everyone has necessarily loved ones, but they still go to work. Let's, add, let's take the following question, the following scenario. If you look in exercise 5.4, if you won the lottery jackpot tomorrow, and you would never have to worry about making a living again, would you choose to work nonetheless? Yes or no? Who says yes? Raise your hand. Even the ones that say no, I can guarantee you, You'll be home for a few days. You'll be running out of the house looking to do something. Now, the work doesn't mean working first so that you get paid. Volunteer or whatever it may be. Why is it? Why is it that people would work even if they have enough money? There are billionaires. What's his name? Bezos still goes to work. Elon Musk still goes to work. Why? What? Goes to space. Well, that's his work, right? But the bottom line is that you have people who have billions of dollars that they have enough money for them, their children, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren to live comfortably, wealthy, and everything else, and they still go to work every day. Why? What's the reason why people go to work? What's the reason why people feel that you need to go for work? To be occupied. Huh? To be occupied. Okay. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. Seemingly... But let me ask you that question. Let's take it back. I need to be, why do I need to work to feel fulfilled? Why can't I find fulfillment in something else? Why is it in the inherent DNA of the human being that we need to work? Why is it that we need to find that automatically every person you speak to, no matter who it is, not only that, we even see it has an impact on people's lives. People that retire early have illnesses when they're earlier and all of a sudden. People that work and continuously are occupied and are busy, they live longer. They're healthier. So why is work inherently a good thing to do, even if you don't need the money for it? You want to feel productive that you're making a contribution. Okay. So Judaism, look at what Judaism's perspective is on work. And listen to this. Text number 10 from the Medrash. Work is precious. All prophets made a point of performing labor. Jacob requested, let me go back to tending and guarding your sheep. Moses is described as a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. King David stated, took, God, took David from the sheep pen. The prophet Amos declared, I'm a cattle herder 
and an inspector of sycamores, but God took me for the following flock. Work is precious. God only rested his spirit upon Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was busy at work. As it is stated, Elijah went from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing. What did Elijah tell him? Go back to work. What did I do to you? Meaning, I did not intend to interrupt you from your work. From the beginning of day, humans are always wired to be working. Why? Because God values work. What does Elijah tell to his faithful student, Elisha? I did not intend to interrupt you from your work. From the beginning of Jewish story, every single ethic and value was encouraged. But what's more embedded more than all the Ten Commandments, what's embedded within the Ten Commandments, talking about the mitzvah of Shabbat, when God tells us about the commandment to rest on the seventh day, but He prefaces it by saying, six days a week you shall work. Why is it so important to work? As we see in text number 11, text number 11, love work, do not despise it. Just as God gave us the Torah along with the divine covenant regarding its observance, so did God give us a covenant regarding our mundane work. As the Torah states, six days you shall work and perform your labor, and the seventh day is Sabbath to God. What is God telling us here? Six days a week you should work. That means part of the mitzvah of Shabbat, there's a mitzvah to work. But why? Why is it so important that it's a mitzvah for us to work? Why is it so embedded in the DNA of the human being that God sanctifies the concept of work and wants us so much to work? Human nature is not just the result of our labor because it's fulfilling. If I were to tell you that you'll feel fulfilled without doing the work, but no, you also want to be able to work like the Talmud says very interestingly in an interesting phenomena. Text number 12. A person prefers a single measure of their own labor rather than a gift of nine measures of someone else's labor. What does it mean they prefer? It is dearer to you if you have a, something that you worked on that you made, you'd prefer that better than if somebody gave you a gift of the same idea, even though that it could cost more in the store. Why? Because it feels good that I made it, that I worked on it, that I was successful with it. Not only the end product, I can give you the same exact end product. But that end product you didn't work on, you don't feel that same. Why is it that work, even if you have all the money in the world, even if somebody would gift it to you, but that energy that you put into it is something that you want more? Let's take it even deeper from a mystical level. The act of work, the Talmud tells us, is the deepest level in the purpose of why God created the universe. Why? Because it all depends on the intention. The Talmud states that after 120 years, the soul comes on high. And when the soul comes on high, the soul is going to be asked a numerous questions of what they did in this world. And what do you think the first question the soul on high is asked? Text number 13. Rava taught, when we depart in this world and we must have faced heaven's judgment, each of us is asked, did you conduct business faithfully? Did you designate times for Torah study? Did you engage in procreation? Did you long for the final redemption? Did you engage in the dialectics of Torah wisdom? Or attempt to extract a fresh concept of an existing one? But what's the first question that God is asking of you? Did you 
engage and did you conduct business faithfully? The very first question in the high court above in heaven, where seemingly nothing else matters but spirituality, they're asking you, did you conduct business faithfully? Before did you learn Torah? Why? And the answer is, because going back to what we mentioned before, every single thing we do in this world is connected to God. God is everywhere, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, in every single aspect of we do. From Wall Street to Main Street, from eating our lunch to eating our dinner, every single aspect is in God. And therefore, what we need to do and what God is telling us here is that in every single aspect in our life, we have to find godliness even in work. And work is a method for us to discover and find godliness in it. As we can see in text number 14, the way the Talmud phrases the heavenly inquiry, did you conduct business faithfully, allows for an alternative understanding. Not only does it include an inquiry regarding your honesty and integrity faithfully, but it's also about the spiritual approach full of faith. Was your mundane and material work saturated with faith in God? What was he saying? What is he telling us over here? That when a person goes, seemingly you may say, wow, this is, sounds abstract. There was a chassid known as Rabbi Yamin Kletzker. He was a very well-known chassid. He was, a very, he was called Kletzker. The word Kletz means beams. He was in the business industry that he rented forests from noblemen, buy their woods, chop them down, make rafts, and then put them down the river, and that's the way he would make money. Every single year, at the end of the winter, he would have to make an inventory of what he did, and at the end, did he write, Ein oid milvade. His total inventory sum, or total amount of money was, there's nothing else but God. They asked him, what is this, a joke or something? He said, absolutely not. At the beginning or at the end, everything that he does in his business is all saturated with the concept that it's all God's. Everything that he does is in the venue for God. You say, how is that possible? How does that make sense? How is it possible that I can find godliness or meditate about godliness in everything I do? Yes, there's niceness of it. But think about it for a moment. If you recognize that your workplace or what you do as a job, as work, is a conduit for bringing God into what you do, then automatically you're kind to the people that you interact with. You're honest in the business that you do. You make sure that you behave in a super regular way, in a super proper way and saturating your activities, which are befitting for a God-fearing individual. But even more so, it takes it even a step further. Imagine somebody's obsessed about something. Pick an example. Let's say somebody's obsessed about baseball. Anything they're going to talk about is going to be an analogy of baseball. You pitched that perfectly to that salesman. Or you, you made a home run. Why? Because his whole mind is about baseball. And whatever he thinks about, if you're a home run, if you're a, you're a hitter, you're a batter, you're a catcher, all the analogies and anything that he looks at, his purview of the world, is going to be baseball. The same idea is also, when we look at everything of this world as we're looking at, to see the spiritual cosmic purpose of what is there. That if we look and we're obsessed with God, then we will find God in everything we do. It's not only I have to create an environment for godliness, 
But in the regular mundane day-to-day activities, I'll seek godliness. I remember there were these two rabbis that used to travel together. And this one rabbi would get off the plane. He had like tons of stories that that was unbelievable divine providence. And the other rabbi said, I don't know, I went on the same flight. I didn't notice it, you know. Why? Because this guy was obsessed with divine providence, if you want to. And therefore, he made it to the plane on time. Wow, divine providence. The guy looked at me twice. All of a sudden, he saw the divine providence and everything. When you're obsessed with something, you see it in everything. You'll see something very interesting, even in subconscious. You'll notice when you get a new car, you'll all of a sudden notice much more of the same car you're driving on the road. All of a sudden, everybody has that car. Or if you're looking for a car, for a particular car, whatever it may be, you'll all of a sudden notice that car more on the road. Where the car is not there before, they were always there before. But because now it's in your mind, you're automatically seeing it more often. The same idea is when we talk about work and godliness. When we're obsessed with godliness, when we're obsessed with seeing God in everything, or being mindful, obsessed is a strong word, being mindful of seeing God in everything, we automatically, subconsciously, say God in everything we do. When we greet somebody and somebody asks us, how are you doing? You say, thank God. You with God willing. Automatically we use those terminology. It's like a second language. You don't even realize that you start saying it. It's a second nature. Because it becomes something which is, becomes part of you. And this is exactly what mindful working means. That while we're busy in the workplace, and while we're doing things, that are seemingly very materialistic, selfish-oriented, making money. But if we are mindful that this is a godly time and a godly spirit, we automatically change the dynamic and whatever we see are just conduits for bringing God into the workplace, God into our lives, and using work as a conduit of connecting to God. There's an a story. There was a businessman who uh, walked into the third Chabad Rebbe. He was a guy, that stood, a peddler that was in the marketplace. His name was Elia. And the Tzemach Tzedek looked at him and it said, Elia, I'm jealous of you. He says, what do you mean you're jealous of me? With the Tzemach Tzedek sitting and learning, great rabbis jealous of me, the peddler. And he says, Elia, I'm jealous of you because you are out there in the market. You're challenged by all the things that you can see God in so many different ways. By me, I'm sitting in my study learning Torah. Of course I see godliness. But to be able to see godliness in the outside, so to speak, within all the different things of life, that's, already a greatness. And this is over here where we see that the concept, that the purpose of life, it's because to give us the ability, and it's not limited to one particular place, but it's the ability to see God within everything. In text number 15, the Rebbe puts it this way. The entire purpose of creation is to create a home for God within the material world in the realm of existence that sits at the bottom of all creation. Beyond there, beyond which there is no lower dimension of its existence. For that reason, our primary work and the overwhelming majority of our pursuits are not in the sacred matters per se, for that would be similar to spiritual service of the soul of heaven. That yet is to descend earth. Or that already departed from earth, Rather that a primary engagement is to engage with maintain material entities. As the Torah instructs us, six years you shall sow your field, indicating that we should introduce holiness and divinity 
even to the soil of a field, the lowest dimension of existence, thereby creating a home for God in the lowest realms. Once again, we see the concept that Jewish meditation comes in and tells us that no matter what we're doing, even it's the most simplistic things, even in our business, opportunities are waiting for us to be able to elevate it, to transform it, just by being mindful, we will be able to notice all those things that are waiting for us to be uplifted. Recognizing that we, while we're amassing capital, going to work, making money, we also have the ability to also gradually create a spiritual environment for ourselves and automatically feel more productive, fulfilled, because that's the reason. Not only fulfilling ourselves spiritually, but uplifting the work into a spiritual place. There's a phenomenal story about a great uh, a fellow in Minnesota, a Chabad rabbi in Minnesota. His name is Rabbi Moshe Feller. There was a, he recently, a few years ago, he passed away. There was a, a professor for NASA. His name was Dr. Velvel Green. He was your typical, you know, very secular Jew, worked for NASA with a very high position there. And uh, Rabbi Feller was making a dinner and he wanted to get this fellow, Dr. Velvel Green's name as one of the people on the dinner chairs, hoping to be able to get more people to come. They see a prominent professor in Minnesota, he would get him to come. So for weeks he tried getting a meeting with Dr. Green, until finally he was able to get the meeting, and Velvel Green told him, you have 10 minutes before for the meeting, because I'm really busy and everything else, tell me what you want. And I know you want money. So he comes inside, he says, he starts telling him, but as he's about to have the meeting, he sees the sun's going down, and he has to daven mincha. He has to pray the afternoon service. He quickly says, tells Dr. you just one moment, can you excuse me for five minutes? I just have to say the afternoon prayer. He gets, goes into the corner, puts on his hand a jack, and says the, says the mincha prayer. This Dr. Green is looking at him in amazement, saying, I don't understand. You waited like six weeks to get this meeting. And just the middle of the meeting, he had to go daven mincha. After the meeting, he asks him to put his name on the invitation, whatever it may be. After the meetings, he calls up his wife and he says, tells his wife, I'm telling you, I just met the real deal. This guy, he's the real rabbi. He takes God really seriously. He's no joke. What he saw was that he was able to take a meeting, something which was seemingly important for financial means, even for benefit many people. But he recognized that he had now an opportunity where he had, a, he had to, there was a greater mission involved which was serving God. The meaning is only a tool to be able to bring God into the world. Work is only a tool to be able to sustain ourselves and to give us fulfillment. But if we only look at the tool and give value to the tool instead of recognizing the impression that's in the tool, the spirituality that's there, then we miss the boat. So once we meditate and recognize that within this individual item, There is an opportunity for growth of spirituality. There's a godly, divine mission. Within the work that I go to, automatically my work becomes a holiness. My work becomes holy, I become holy, and all of a sudden it's a greater fulfillment, it's a greater opportunity, and we look at it much differently. Here's the last meditation for today.
Why do you do this? Is it to save money for the vacation at the end of the year? Or is it to give yourself and your family security for survival? Or do you do it to help self-realize, fulfillment, higher purpose? Since such a significant part of your life is at work, it's important <coughs> to imbue it with some sense of importance, which it is. Gently close your eyes and picture yourself walking along a gentle sloping path upwards a hillside. And as you move upwards, seeing the scenery around you, it feels so pleasant, so free, so good. Is that the feeling you have when you go to work? And if not, why not? Work seems to repeat the same mechanics. But think about it. You're an artist at work. The artist has the same mechanics, the same paintbrush, the equivalent canvas, every single time. And yet, each opportunity is a new work of art. Your work has to be imbued with purpose, mission, destiny. When you speak with your colleagues, you can change their lives. Speaking with confidence, speaking positively, very much affects the lives of those around you. With those words, you are an artist with a paintbrush. The more you smile at work, even without speaking, lifts the spirits of those around you. You affect them profoundly. The way you conduct yourself, personal excellence, self-mastery, gives those around you a sense of pride in the same work. The mechanics may be the same, but the mechanics are only the means of you to express your true artistry. Allow your work to be clay 
in the hands of a sculptor. Changing your attitude, giving your work a sense of purpose, meaning, changes the world and certainly changes the lives of those around you. And this will reflect in you. You will see how your own life becomes changed, positive, uplifted, happy through your work. Work is important. It occupies so much of your day. Allow yourself to be the artist in the studio in context of your work. And that way, allow the world to be a beautiful garden that everyone can walk in with admiration. Gently focus again on your breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Feeling the coolness of the air as it enters and the warmth of the air as it exits. Begin moving your fingers and your toes in the room where you are. Move your fingers, move your toes. Become aware of where you are now and gently begin opening your eyes, coming all the way back into the here and now. So just to summarize what we have today, it's the three making meditation practical is to be conscious of the divine energy in your food, being utilizing the daily body and soul reboot of when we sleep, and finally, finding God in the mundane work routine. So here's a quick review of, on you have the page 173, the key points of what we studied today. Next week, weekend's final That's class. Next week is the final class of implementing and seeing, putting together the relationship between Judaism and meditation. We'll learn how this two-way relationship helps enhance us as people and our relationship with God. Just also a little uh, commercial announcement, which is the following week is or, it's Purim as well. So Purim is March 17th. We have a big Purim party here. Hopefully you'll enjoy us. And Purim March 16th at night is begins Purim. We hear the Megillah and then we hear it again March 17th. So further information feel see us on the website or whatever maybe all the information that you can get any questions